I have the privilege of reading the word this morning. I invite you to follow along. I think it'll be on the screen from the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter, uh, or follow along in the Pew Bible there in front of you. Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with her perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said that it is said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, you ju just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so, they, so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. 
So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound, hand and foot with linen strips, with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kyle. It is my pleasure to spend time in God's word with you today while so many of us are um, worshiping on the side of a mountain in Colorado. Scott Irwin is preaching to the students and volunteers this morning. I'm sure the Lord is going to be ministering to that multitude in many, many different ways. Um, we have here one of the more famous stories, and you can, you can gauge the familiarity of a Bible story or how popular it is by checking out children's Bibles. In my house, we're in the thick of the children's Bible industry. I have a lot of kids. Um, I have four. Feels like 11, but I have four. Um, ages nine, seven, three, and one. So we kind of run the gamut when it comes to children's Bibles. Uh, my nine-year-old's a pretty strong reader. He just reads what we read mostly, but he loves his comic book Bible. And the comic book Bibles always have the Lazarus story because it gives these artists an excuse to draw a really creepy-looking mummy coming out of a cave. Um, my daughter reads kind of like a, a uh, it's like real Bible, but it's like a really um, reduced children's version in terms of the grammar. Obviously, the Lazarus story is in there because it's just the text. The, the lower down you go, the less likely this story is to be in the Bible. It's interesting. Uh, I, I get why it's not in the toddler Bibles, because there's no puppies or baby lambs in this one, so they don't have anything to do with it. Um, but as you move up, slowly you get the Lazarus story back. But it's such a cool one, and it's fascinating to me that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't even bother. This is such a fascinating miracle that Jesus performs. They don't even bother. Now, they have stories of Jesus raising the dead. He raises Jairus' daughter in Mark and in Luke, but... Only John gives us the Lazarus story. Um, and I want to just reflect here at the, at the beginning of our time together on why John thought we needed to hear this one. Why did he put it in and no one else did? The story is so long, thank you Kyle, and fascinating. And it has so many interesting little details that... Um, there's lots of things to learn, there's lots of things to observe, and there's lots of things that you and I will just naturally resonate with. Um, at the beginning, you have the disciples 
who for the umpteenth time in John's gospel just don't seem to get it. Jesus is saying, we need to go back to, to Judea. And they're like, well, they're trying to kill us there, so let's not go there. And Jesus is like, seriously, guys, you still struggle to figure this out. Then you have Thomas, who is kind of the impetuous disciple at this point. Peter doesn't really get that, that reputation in John's gospel as much as Thomas does. And he's like, well, fine, let's go. And there's this hint of sarcasm in there. Um, and as a recovering sarcastic who's not really struggling with it anymore, um, I resonate a lot with Thomas. Then there's the two characters that we, we want to really focus on. Are you a Mary or are you a Martha? Are you Martha who just runs to Jesus in desperation? You're very free and you're abandoned to go just, I need Jesus. Or are you, are you Mary? Do you, do you sit patiently and wait on Jesus? There is, of course, the thing about him being dead for four days, and there's like the, the interesting cultural clue that says that Jewish tradition uh, uh, taught that at, at three days the soul leaves the body and then the body's free to kind of decompose, and so there are things. It's four days, Jesus. We can't open that tomb. There's the verse, Jesus wept. In English, shortest verse in the Bible. In, in the original language, it's tied with another one, but... We're fascinated by this very short verse because one, it's easy to memorize. Two, it really betrays Jesus' humanity. And we just resonate with that part of Jesus who sits here as someone who can fix this and will indeed fix this but still aches and is brokenhearted over the loss of a dear friend, which the text says he loves Lazarus, says he loves Mary, says he loves Martha, and he's broken and bitterly weeping we really connect with that. And then there is, of course, the fact that Lazarus comes out of the tomb. It's an incredible, incredible story, and it clearly prefigures something Jesus is himself about to do in an even more glorious way. But what's interesting is, as it relates to John's purpose, none of those things are the point. I don't even think Lazarus coming back to life is the point. Now, what we're given in this text is, are two very helpful aids. One, extremely helpful. The other one, you got to do a little bit of work with. But the first one, and I think this is so important, is if we ever have to wonder why John included the Lazarus story, Jesus tells us in verse 4. Jesus quite literally says in verse 4, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now we're going to spend some more time working through this particular paragraph because I think it holds so much key information for understanding this story as a whole. But when Jesus tells you from the jump, this is why this is happening, that's why this is happening. And that's why John included it. So what, interestingly enough, this passage is not about Jesus' ability to raise the dead per se. It is about the glory of God as seen in Jesus, the one who will be able to raise the dead. And it's important that we get the order right. It's for the glory of God mediated through Jesus who can raise the dead. Now, the second thing, in addition to Jesus himself giving us the clue or the very clear answer as to why this story is in the Bible, the second thing we have are conjunctions. And I don't know how many of you are grammar nerds here. I see a couple of English teachers. Um, but when you get this a lot in Paul's epistles, if you start to look for the conjunctions, you look for but or and or therefore. 
And in John's gospel, you don't, you, you don't get this very often in these storytelling books of the Bible, but John does it so much. You look for the so that, and that's all over this story. This happened so that, and it tells you why. It's the answer to the question, why? So, verse three, Mary and Martha send a message to, to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. Keep that in mind. It's gonna speak frequently about his love for them. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but, good little conjunction there, is for the glory of God. Why? So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And back to the love business. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister Mary, and Lazarus. So, or therefore, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. So again, verse four tells us why this is in the story and that so that God would be glorified. And Jesus clearly loves Martha. He loves Mary. He loves Lazarus. That's already been said twice. It'll be said again further down in the narrative. But what's fascinating to me is if you just slow down and read this without knowing what comes next, if you just slow down and read it, effectively, John tells us, God will be glorified and Jesus loves Lazarus, so Jesus waited and let Lazarus die. God will be glorified, Jesus loves Lazarus, so Jesus let him die. It's very clear that he could have got there in time and that Jesus intentionally dragged his feet. And that's, that's reinforced later in the text whenever she says, he's been in there four days. And I think Jesus is very well aware of the amount of time because he could have been there in time to, to keep him from passing away. And yet, God will be glorified. And Jesus loves Lazarus, so he let him die. It's a very interesting sequence of events. Now, if you just look at this paragraph as a whole, there are two big ideas that seem to weigh heavily on it. It's both love and glory. It's Jesus' love for his friends, and it's the glory that God will, um, will indeed get. So how does the love of God and the glory of God intertwine in this one story to work itself out as Jesus is letting friends die on purpose? It's bizarre. How does this add up? And it brings to mind another famous passage in John's gospel where love and glory are, are interwoven. And it's called the high priestly prayer. Uh, we'll get there at this rate probably next year. <laughs> but the high priestly prayer in John 17 is one of the most beautiful sections of scripture where Jesus has a very personal conversation with his father. And he did it aloud so that his disciples could hear this relationship working itself out. And Jesus prayed for them. And he prayed for you. And you just see God's glory at the forefront. And then God's love within the Trinity, the Father's love for the Son, and then their, their overflowing love for the lost and broken world. You just see these things falling over one another. And I see love and glory as so intimately connected. John 17 starts like this. After Jesus spoke these things, so he's just come out of John chapter 16 where he spoke extensively about the Holy Spirit. He looked up to heaven and said, 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Keep track of the so that's as well. Glorify your son. Why? So that the son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all people. Why? So that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. So Jesus is connecting a number of things here. There's the glory of the Father as it's shared with the glory of the Son, and that spills over into this, this eternal life that he's going to give to all who come to Jesus. And then it says in verse 3, this is eternal life. I love it when it just gives you like a clear definition. That they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. That is a profound definition of what eternal life is. See, when I read the Lazarus story, and I see Jesus raising the dead, and I see himself calling himself the resurrection and the life, I I tend to read it through the lens of, and I will get to live forever. I will not have to pay the punishment for my sins against the creator of the universe. Jesus will pay that for me, and I get to live forever, which is true. Jesus just doesn't really seem to frame it that way when he talks about eternal life. He says this, eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus. And in the end, as you see this glory and this love fall over itself, you see one and the same. And that's going to be very important here in just a moment, but I want you to, to just kind of let that one roll around in your mind. Eternal life is to know someone. It's not to possess something. It's not a Willy Wonka golden ticket, get into heaven type thing. It's, it's defined here as to know someone. Verse five, he says, now Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. The one who can give eternal life has lived eternally. Further down in the high priestly prayer, he says this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Why? So that they will see my glory. Okay, so we've added another layer to this eternal life business. It's eternal life is to know someone And Jesus further defines it as to be with someone, to be with him. Why? So that he will be glorified. You see how the Lazarus story, when Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death, but rather it will end in the glory of God and in the glory of the Son of God. How it just seems like there's something bigger going on than bringing back a friend who passed away. And yet you have this prayer in John 17 that is so connecting the love of God with his glory and God's love for his people with the fact that when he pours out his love on us, it will indeed reflect glory back to the Father. So I ask this question in kind of a practical sense. What does it look like for us to then turn and love in a God-like way? What does godly love look like I think for us, particularly within the church, it is to help our brothers and sisters see and admire and become consumed by the glory of God. 
Well, that's all well and good when it's just words on a page, but there's two truths I can't get around, and the Lazarus story aptly illustrates both. One, God always loves us, and two, pain and suffering have not ceased. There's pain and there's death. Um, Many of you know uh, about six years ago, 2016, my wife's younger brother passed away, um, tragically, of brain cancer. So if you've ever seen this tattoo, um, her brothers have similar ones in different locations, but it's a buffalo. His name was Joey. Um, His nickname for quite some time was just Buffalo Joe, and there's a long story about how he came to be known as Buffalo Joe. But in 2015, he was diagnosed with um, brain cancer, and then he died on April 24th, 2016, at the age of 25. My wife is one of seven kids. Joey was number four, right in the middle. And um, it was the, I, I've had many family members pass away, but usually it's, it's just, it's, it's at a later stage in life. This is the closest one I've ever been to in terms of like a personal tragedy. Um, it was fascinating to watch a family full of faithful believers wonder where was God's love in this. And it's not like I was just, you know, objectively observing. I was working through it myself. But um, there, was, there was a part of the grief of a mother burying a 25-year-old son that you're so close to it, it's hard to find the love of God. How does this bring God glory? Um, Joey didn't have a Lazarus story. I guarantee many people prayed that he would come back to life, and he didn't. Um, So I'm left with these two seemingly irreconcilable truths. God is loving He will be glorified, and people still experience pain and death. And I'm looking at the Lazarus story wondering, how do I figure out where God was as Joey was suffering in excruciating pain and then finally passed away? And the answer that I get from the Lazarus story is that God was there the whole time in all of his glory and splendor, never ceasing to love Joey or his mother or his father or his siblings or anyone else who was suffering alongside of watching a a friend and a brother pass away. God was there in all of his love and all of his glory. And that's about all I have to bring to the conversation. I kind of run out of answers at that point. Um, But I look at John 11... And the disciples are confused, as they tend to be, when Jesus says Lazarus is asleep. They're like, well, let's wake him up. And Jesus is like, no, he died. But then he tells us this, this line. He says, Lazarus has died, verse 15. I'm glad for you. It's really bizarre when you slow the story down. 
God will be glorified and Jesus loves Lazarus, so Jesus let him die. Lazarus died, and now I'm glad for you guys. In effect, you get to see what this is all really about now. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there. Why? So that you may believe. I can stop right there and just finish the sermon. And some of you are like, I wish you would. But um, the Lazarus story is about belief in Jesus. Virtually every miracle in John's gospel is intended to evoke belief in Jesus. Because if love is intertwined with glory and yet pain and death still exist, what the Lazarus story really helps us see is that there is both life now, which Lazarus was given as a gift, and there's life eternal. Because before he actually raised his friend from the dead, he's having a conversation with his sister. And she's like, I wish you had been here. Jesus is like, hold on. Do you know what I, like, do you understand? And he says, like, she, she believes in the general resurrection at the end. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then there is the bombshell question. Do you believe this? The Lazarus story is asking us, how much do we trust Jesus? How much do we believe in him? Do we believe this is the ultimate question? And I think the Lazarus story is there begging us to believe in this one who can call himself the resurrection and the life. He gives life in spite of death. So we believe in him. And it's asking us to bask in the glory of God from verse 4 by uniting to Jesus in our faith and in our belief. And this is where I want to, to, to just underscore some of how Jesus is phrasing this. Resurrection and eternal life are not commodities that you and I can possess. It is not something you can hold. It's a person. I remember years ago, um, there was a Bible study in, it was a meeting in this overflow space at the time. Um, and I was in a different passage in John, but I had a very similar text where Jesus is giving himself a label. And <laughs> I said, and I, I'm sure I phrased it with all the tact in the world, but um, I said something to the effect of salvation is not a gift. Salvation is not a gift. When you give me a gift, I have it. It's mine. It is, it is like its ownership has changed. And the gasp went up in the room as everyone's like, I don't like this young guy saying these kind of things. But then I explained, salvation is not a gift in the sense that you can't possess it. Salvation is a person. And what I was trying to draw attention to is there are times where I'll have some... Um, very, um, very caring family member who, who wants to speak to me about um, 
a grandson or a brother who at one point had a strong confession of faith and a resolve to follow the Lord, but hasn't had that for some time. And, and what, they, what they're asking from me is to give some degree of assurance that even though the, their life doesn't look anything like what the Christian life ought to be, there's still some degree of assurance and hope for them. And while there's always hope, I'm, I seldom feel comfortable giving much assurance. And then I come back to this idea, like you're talking about salvation as if it's something that was written down on an IOU-type slip and put in the pocket, and then the rest of your life is kind of, it, it, it's irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. You have, you have it. You have the ticket. You're good. Salvation's not a gift. It's a person. Jesus doesn't offer you resurrection. He is resurrection. Jesus doesn't give you life. He is life itself. And so my question for those who have wayward loved ones that want to discuss what, what, what do you think their state is now, I said, well, do they live their life with Jesus? That's how you have this eternal life. That's where you get to experience the blessing of God's glory. It's it's to live with the one who is himself resurrection and the life. It's all about belief and trust. In verse 38, Jesus deeply moved and, and, and it doesn't quite connote the, the angst. That it's, it's almost like violently moved viscerally moved, he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench, because he's been dead four days. And Jesus didn't say, don't worry, I can raise him back to life. He'll do that. But the point he wanted Lazarus' sister to get, this is about belief and about the glory of God. He said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So I come away from this Lazarus story, and I, and I realize that our faith in Jesus, our enacted belief in Jesus is is a way that we can both glorify God, but Jesus says, and to also experience the glory of God. And, and Lazarus also offers one more interesting little nuance. It's not just about eternal life. It's not just about renewed life forever. That is, of course, available in Jesus through the power of his resurrection. But Lazarus gives us a picture of new life now. Now, his was quite literally new life now. He would, he would at some point go and, and pass away again. But it seems that it may be hinting at if Lazarus was given a new physical life, I wonder if Jesus is enacting a lesson about in him, if he is resurrection and life, and we attach ourselves to him by faith, then we also experience new life now through the transformation of the Spirit. It's what baptism pictures. In the baptistry, we all have 
our personal Lazarus moment. Buried with Christ, raised to walk a new life. So this story about Jesus' love for a man in Bethany and the fact that he has the power over death to bring him back not only signals what Jesus is going to ultimately do in his death and in his resurrection to an infinitely greater degree, but it also tells us that in Jesus, in the one who is resurrection and life himself, there is new life now. When we respond to faith in belief in Jesus. In John 5, we covered this some time ago. But Jesus said some fascinating things that, can, that connect very well to, to John 17 here. He said, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Lazarus heard the words, Lazarus, come forth, if you're reading an older translation, Lazarus, come out. And he couldn't help but respond. How much more should those of us who are indwelt by the very Spirit of God who raises the dead to life, when we hear the word of the Lord, when we hear the words of the Lord, how much more should we respond in faith? Jesus says, truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For those of you who have committed your lives to Jesus and sworn your allegiance to him by faith, he's talking about you here. The dead, you and I, prior to meeting Jesus, have heard the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it, and as in verse 24, he connects hearing to belief and belief to obedience, will live. And then look where this life is rooted. It's not something, again, that you and I can possess. It is wrapped up in God himself. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. Why did John tell us the story about Lazarus? So that you and I would believe in the one that God sent. And so that you and I could find our delight in the glory of God. And so that you and I would do this by living lives in union with Christ. John's gospel closes with uh, close to the end. In John chapter 20, he sums up kind of everything that he's covered at that point. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these, those that I've put down, John says, these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's kind of why um, it, it's really 
helpful to ask what John is doing. And he is giving us all of these miraculous stories. Not necessarily to tell us what Jesus can do, although that's important, but more to tell us who he is, the Messiah. And John's conclusion throughout the whole gospel is, and if that's true, that merits our unwavering belief and allegiance. In a sense, the whole book could be summed up by Peter's response at the end of the Sermon on the Bread of Life in John chapter 6. Where else would we go? Peter asked him. You alone have the words of eternal life. So our hope is unbelievably, our, our eternal hope is rooted in the resurrection in Jesus. Jesus' own resurrection secured our future resurrection. He is himself the resurrection and the life. But our hope today is demonstrated in the Spirit's transformative work in, in those of us who have already passed from death to life in the waters of baptism. Why? For God's glory. So that through him, Jesus may likewise be glorified. So as we come to a time of reflection, these, these may seem like simple questions, but I would imagine the longer you let them simmer, the more rich they'll become. So first, spend a few moments do you believe that in Jesus you have found eternal life? Do you really believe that? And two, do you believe that in Jesus you have new life already?